At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 4, Eastern Europe, 1945 to 1948. In this episode, we will examine the opening stages of the Cold War, why the Cold War started, and if it could have been avoided. By April 1945, 2.5 million men and 6,000 Soviet tanks stood ready to capture Berlin. In the West, the Allies had crossed the Rhine River and were sieging the cities of West Germany. In the skies above Germany, American and British bombers rained death and fire down upon German civilians and soldiers, both day and night. During the war, the United States refused to negotiate the political boundaries of the post-war world, despite British and Soviet interests to do so. Roosevelt didn't want to engage in the horse trading of diplomacy while the war was still raging, because he felt it would undermine the moral objectives of the war and would look bad domestically. Therefore, the negotiations for the post-war period didn't begin until a few months before the war in Europe ended. With the end of the war in sight, the three great powers of Great Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union each held different perspectives about how the post-war world should be shaped. Churchill and the British wanted to restore Europe to a traditional balance of power. The balance of power concept dated back to the 1500s and was a political arrangement by which the European powers, in cooperation with other nations, prevented one nation or alliance from dominating the European continent. Therefore, Great Britain wanted to rebuild both France and Germany with American help to balance off the Soviet Union, who they believed represented a threat to the European balance of power with its sinister ideology of Marxist-Leninism. The British Empire was greatly weakened as Britain had been at war longer than either the Soviet Union or the United States. Churchill's diplomacy thus consisted of maneuvering between the two other great powers who threatened Great Britain's position in the world from opposite directions. The Americans financially burdened Britain with debt while pressuring them to surrender their colonies, while the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe directly challenged Britain's security and interest in Western Europe. In 1944, Churchill was able to secure an arrangement with Stalin to secure Britain's influence over Greece and Turkey, safeguarding Britain's position in the Mediterranean. In exchange, he consented Stalin having a greater sphere of influence in Romania and Bulgaria. The Americans and Roosevelt rejected Churchill's view that the defeat of Germany would create a power vacuum in Central Europe. Moreover, they rejected the concept of the balance of power on moral grounds. They believed that the balance of power was disturbing and devious and had brought about the disastrous policies that had led to the First and Second World Wars in the first place. Roosevelt envisioned a post-war order with four great policemen, the United States, Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and China, who would patrol the world and would guard against future upheavals by keeping aggressive nations like Germany in line. 
Roosevelt, however, had no backup plan for if one of these policemen went rogue, especially the Soviet Union. In the immediate post-war period, two events would come to dominate the American psyche. The United States wanted to avoid another Great Depression and another World War. The Great Depression scarred an entire generation of Americans. Many people lost all their wealth, rich and poor alike. Many went hungry, and many committed suicide. At its depths, unemployment hit 25%. Farming communities in rural areas suffered as crop prices fell by approximately 60%. Many people believe this led to tariffs and a breakdown in international trade, which in turn led to the establishment of trading blocks and militant politics, which helped bring about the Second World War. Secondly, many Americans believed that the appeasement in the 1930s had also contributed to the Second World War. Therefore, the Americans were committed to not repeating the mistakes of the 1920s and 1930s. Many Americans believed that free trade, access to investment capital, and abundant cheap raw materials were vital to the world economy. Therefore, the Americans established the Bretton Woods Agreement, which agreed to return the world economy to the gold standard the U.S. dollar replacing the pound as the world's reserve currency, as well as the creation of the International Monetary Fund to guard against the currency swings and large devaluations of the 1930s. The World Bank was also created to lend funds to governments and businesses to rebuild the world. Thus, the Americans didn't want to see one of the world's major industrial zones, Eastern Europe, roped off from the world economy. Stalin's objectives ran counter to both Churchill and Roosevelt. He wanted to build a buffer zone with friendly states in Eastern Europe to protect Russia against any future invasion. It should be remembered that at this point, Russia had been invaded twice in the last 40 years. To Stalin, quote, friendly meant that these nations would have Marxist-Leninist regimes loyal to the Kremlin and by extension to Stalin himself. The western half of Russia had been devastated. Cities and towns were destroyed. Farms and villages were burnt to the ground with their inhabitants dead or displaced. One U.S. security report estimated Soviet losses at 675 billion rubles, surpassing the entire national wealth of Great Britain. Later, Soviet calculations estimated the damage at 2.6 trillion rubles. We like to think that the Soviet Union had an inexhaustible supply of manpower, but this was simply not true. They were just as desperate for manpower as Germany at the end of the war. The Soviet Union had suffered 26.6 million deaths, both civilian and military, which was compounded by 30 million deaths from Stalin's purges and forced collectivization in the 1920s and 1930s. Millions of those who survived the war were forced into poverty as the state rationed food and requisitioned people's wealth through taxes and semi-voluntary donations to buy war bonds to pay for the massive cost of the war. Many of the Soviet elites and common citizens were tired of the war and were looking forward to the post-war peace. Stalin, in contrast, was always thinking about security and the next war, and Stalin saw the United States as the Soviet Union's greatest foreign threat. The United States had been untouched by the war and suffered far fewer casualties, with a death toll of 293,000 from the war. Moreover, the United States possessed the largest economy in the world. In contrast, the entire Soviet economy only represented 15% of the American economy. More importantly, the Americans had the atomic bomb and a fleet of long-range bombers who could deliver these weapons deep inside the Soviet Union. Instinctually, Stalin decided to play hardball since he believed any show of weakness would invite pressure from the Allies who he believed wanted to destroy the Soviet Union. Moreover, he believed 
that he had to push hard to extract the best possible peace deal from the Allies, which would last 10 to 20 years before the next great war. This may sound like paranoia, but from Stalin's perspective, he remembered the American and British occupation of Murmansk and Vladivostok in 1918. Stalin had also been brutally and unexpectedly betrayed by his last ally, Hitler, as well. He had also intercepted British messages to British Field Marshal Montgomery to store captured German weapons for a possible future war with Russia. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us too much that a man who had experienced war most of his adult life would be skeptical of a lasting peace. More importantly, Stalin viewed the world through the Marxist-Leninist belief of class struggle. He believed that it would be only a matter of time until the capitalists plunged the world into another bloody struggle. Before the end of the war, the Allies would meet in two major conferences. In February of 1945, the Allies met for the first time to hash out the structure of the post-war world. The Allies agreed to divide Germany after the war between the three of them plus France, with Berlin the capital being split between the Allies in a similar fashion. One of the issues of contention between the Allies was Poland. Great Britain and the United States had deep interest in post-war Poland and had issues with Stalin's occupation of the country. Stalin wanted to push Poland's borders west into former German territory to offset his conquest of Poland's eastern territory, which he had taken in 1939. This was a hard pill for the British to swallow, given that they had begun the Second World War to protect Polish territorial integrity. 200,000 Poles had also served valiantly under British command, and the Poles had helped to break the German Enigma Code, which aided the Allies in winning the Second World War. Roosevelt was keen to keep the support of the 5 million Polish-American voters who voted solidly Democratic. Stalin promised free elections in Eastern Europe in exchange for the Allies recognizing the Soviet government in Warsaw. Stalin underestimated, though, that the Americans took treaties very seriously and felt bitterly wronged when Stalin didn't live up to his word. Although, to be fair, in the first two years after the war, only Yugoslavia and Albania became communist dictatorships as a result of indigenous Marxist movements with little help from Moscow. Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and Romania had left-wing governments where the Communist Party shared power. Multi-party elections had been held in 1946 in both Czechoslovakia and Hungary. However, that's not to say that harassment of non-communists wasn't taking place. But from Stalin's perspective of Marxist-Leninism, which advocated one-party rule, he was being extremely liberal. Stalin didn't quite really understand the concept of democracy either. When Roosevelt spoke of dealing with Congress or domestic voters, Stalin thought it was all nonsense and a smokescreen by Roosevelt to get more concessions out of the Soviet Union. As Stalin complained to Molotov, quote, Roosevelt is their military leader and commander-in-chief. Who would dare object to him? The Allies wouldn't meet again until Potsdam in August 1945. The situation had changed since Yalta. Germany had surrendered and Hitler had committed suicide. In April 1945, Roosevelt died and Harry S. Truman became president. Roosevelt had been a part of the East Coast establishment, but Truman was a Midwesterner from the rural middle class and the only president in recent times not to graduate from college. Nor was Truman briefed on the course of the war and U.S. diplomacy by Roosevelt during the war. This may seem odd, but up until recently, since Cheney and Biden, American vice presidents were seen as politically worthless figureheads and generally left in the dark. But Truman had been well-schooled in politics, a product of the Kansas City political machine. Moreover, like many people in the Midwest, Truman wasn't fond of communists. 
During an interview in early 1941, he said that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany were morally equivalent and he didn't mind them killing each other. Truman and many Americans were willing, though, to give Stalin the benefit of the doubt by 1945. The Soviet Union had, to an extent, built up a great deal of political credit with the rest of the world as a result of the sacrifices they had endured in fighting the Nazis. However, with the death of Roosevelt, Stalin lost one of his biggest political allies in American politics, and few remained. Henry Wallace, with a few other New Deal Democrats from the 30s, would continue to support the alliance with the Soviet Union. But as time went on, they continued to lose influence with the Truman. In contrast, there were others like Secretary of the Navy Forrestal and George Kennan, who urged Truman to take a harder line with the Soviets and saw them as a threat, especially in wider conservative circles where Stalin and communism was despised. During the Potsdam Conference, Churchill's Conservative Party was also voted out of office, making Clement Attlee Prime Minister. Leader of the Labor Party from 1935 to 1955, Attlee was the first person to hold the office of Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, serving under Winston Churchill in the wartime coalition government, before going on himself to lead the Labor Party to a landslide election victory in 1945. At the conference, the powers spoke past one another. Stalin insisted on consolidating his sphere of influence, and the Allies continued to press Stalin for free elections in Eastern Europe. Stalin did get the Allies to agree to move the Polish borders to the west, allowing him to keep the lands he had conquered from Poland in 1939, and he did get the Allies to end their recognition of the Polish government in exile. The Soviet Union soon, though, faced many problems with holding its empire. The first issue the Soviets faced was that the war didn't really end in 1945. Hundreds of thousands of nationalist elements, bandits and Nazi th sympathizers in the Baltic and western Ukraine fled to the countryside and forests and continued to fight a brutal guerrilla war against the Soviet Union into the late 1950s with thousands of deaths and the misguided belief that eventually the Americans and British would come to their aid and declare war on the Soviet Union. The Soviet response was brutally efficient. The Soviets understood that the struggle couldn't be won by force of arms alone. Local militias were formed so that the conflict took on the aspects of a civil war as relatives and friends sided with different factions. Torture was also extensively used, and especially beatings. In Latvia, 18% of those arrested died in interrogations. Other methods included public executions and the display of rebel bodies in town squares to intimidate the local population from supporting the insurgency. The Soviets also targeted the relatives and friends of those who were partisans as well. In fairness, though, the partisans themselves did use terror and indiscriminate violence as well against local civilians and the Soviets. The Soviets even destroyed entire villages and deported their residents to the gulags in Siberia as well as run false flag operations where Soviet troops pretended to be partisans to attack local civilians so that the civilians would turn against the insurgency. Despite the insurgency, Stalin demobilized the massive Soviet army from 12.5 million men to 4.5 million. He also began a new round of purges arresting former army officers, exiling others, and executing anyone he perceived as a threat. The Soviet Union also faced the renewed danger of famine in 1946 as a result of drought, but Stalin refused to accept relief from the United Nations, and Stalin also raised taxes on farmers to continue his policy of heavy industrialization. In Eastern Europe, initially, the Soviets were overjoyed with their victory and believed that they had the chance to rebuild a better world, 
As Khrushchev explained, quote, After the catastrophe of World War II, Europe, too, might become Soviet. Everyone would take the path from capitalism to socialism. Many communists thought they would win the municipal elections and the aftermath of the war, which they argued was a result of capitalism and right-wing politics. They saw the victory of the British Labor Party and the conditions of Eastern Europe as fertile ground for socialist republics. Like the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe had been shattered by the war. Moreover, the end of the war didn't bring peace, but an orgy of ethnic cleansing and refugees, and whole communities were displaced as a result of new national borders being drawn. 1945 saw one of the largest movements of people in human history. The trains, roads, and trails were filled with hundreds of thousands of people returning from exile in Russia, German labor camps, POW camps, or refugees looking to find family or friends in the aftermath of the war. The Soviets now ruled over an additional 80 million people, about half the size of the Soviet population. In none of these countries, minus Yugoslavia or Albania, could the Communist Party hope to win a general election. Many of these nations were hostile to Soviet rule. Many of the nations remembered their bondage under Tsarist Russia not that long ago. They saw little difference in Russian rule in Tsarist times versus Communist times. The Poles remembered Stalin's invasion of Poland in 1939, including the Ketyan Massacre, which saw the summary execution of 15,000 Polish officers, which had been discovered in 1943 and denied by the Soviet Union until 1990. Moreover, the Red Army's practice of pillaging and raping many of the inhabitants had turned them against the Soviets. Beyond this, Stalin started to redraw the borders of Eastern Europe, taking land for the Soviet Union, which was bound to displease hundreds of thousands of people. The Soviet Union also systematically plundered Eastern Europe under the guise of reparations payments. The plunder included everything from industrial equipment, artwork, historical documents, and household goods like clocks, shoes, and silverware, all shipped east in boxcars or as stolen items in the pockets or bread bags of Soviet soldiers. Yugoslavia, unlike the other states of Eastern Europe, didn't border the Soviet Union, but the Mediterranean. Tito, its leader, was a wartime guerrilla leader who had fought against the German occupation of his country since 1941 and was very popular with the Yugoslav people. Tito was a true communist, but he was also a nationalist and wouldn't kowtow to Stalin, like the other leaders of Eastern Europe. This would lead to a falling out between Stalin and Tito. Stalin would attempt to covertly overthrow Tito, but fail. Tito would eventually craft a middle way between the West and the Soviet Union. Stalin, in response, would make sure to purge the Communist parties of Eastern Europe of any future Titos in the years to come. The Americans and British complained bitterly about what was transpiring in Eastern Europe, but Stalin saw these complaints as meddlesome and hypocritical. Stalin pointed out that the Allies gave him virtually no say in what was happening in France and Italy, and the Soviet Union had been totally cut out of the occupation of Japan, with no say in what happened there. With the Allies and the Soviets working cross-purposes, the stage was set for a confrontation. Stalin said as much in February 1946, when he announced that the war was inevitable as long as capitalism existed. The next day, the New York Times ran the story, quote, Stalin says stage is set for war. Churchill would go on to offer a rebuttal to Stalin's February 1946 speech and his famous Iron Curtain speech that called for a negotiated settlement with Stalin 
before the world became divided into two armed camps. The biggest challenge facing the Americans was the utter devastation of Europe. After the war, Europe was on the brink of starvation, and Truman worried that this was leading to radical and communist politics taking hold in Europe, which was further destabilizing the world politically and economically. Truman and others felt this represented a direct threat to the United States. Many people were joining the Communist Party around the world out of desperation, pragmatism, cynicism, or ideology. Capitalism and liberal democracy had failed catastrophically in the 1930s, and many were ready to try something different. In 1946, the American economy sagged and unemployment rose with millions of GIs coming home and factories retooling for domestic consumption. Truman faced strikes in the steel mills and railroads. Much of the American economy was based off of exports, so if Europe and its colonies closed their markets to American goods, the United States would re-enter the Depression. Most of these exports were being bought by Europe, but they were quickly running out of dollars to pay for American goods. The American tax-cutting Republican Congress, however, didn't share Truman's concerns. They felt that the United States was spending itself to death, and it was time to concentrate on its own domestic issues. Truman convinced them to allocate credit to these nations to buy American goods in what became the Marshall Plan. By explaining to them that if they did nothing, Europe would fall to communism and that this was part of a larger communist conspiracy for world domination. This ploy worked, and Congress passed the funding, but the national fear level had been artificially risen, and the Republicans would become ever more radical in their opposition to communism. The United States not only offered Marshall Plan's funds to Western Europe, but initially to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Many Americans didn't want Russia to participate, though, as they were justifying the need for the loan as a defense against communism. They wouldn't be able to get the bill through Congress with the Soviet Union as one of the nations receiving funds. Czechoslovakia went ahead and applied for funds, but Stalin saw this move by the Americans as a plot to entice the Eastern European nations out of Russia's orbit. Therefore, Stalin began to consolidate his position by establishing loyal communist dictatorships in Eastern Europe. It began in February 1948 with the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, with the backing of the Soviet Red Army, took control of the Czechoslovakian government in a bloody coup. This coup shocked the Allies. They saw it as a blatant violation of the Yalta Agreement and harkened back to the politics of Munich a decade ago when Hitler had forced the Allies to back down and surrender the Sudetenland. This time, though, the Americans and British were intent on not repeating the mistakes of appeasement. As Truman said, quote, We faced exactly the same situation that the British and French faced in 1938-39 with Hitler. Stalin seriously miscalculated. Once America's confidence and good faith in him had been destroyed, there was no turning back. The American leadership, elites, and people viewed him as evil. He had pushed the Americans too far, and now they felt they needed to stand up to the Soviets and push back. The coup in Czechoslovakia removed the last roadblocks in Congress to the Marshall Plan. It also accelerated British, French, and American plans to consolidate their occupation zones in Germany and Berlin into a new West German nation. Once the Americans responded with the Marshall Plan and the creation of NATO, Stalin accelerated communist control of Eastern Europe. Anyone suspected as a threat was arrested and or shot. The coups in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria 
all followed a common pattern. As the Red Army advanced through Eastern Europe in 1945, they established their allies in key positions within these new governments. First, the NKVD, or the KGB, helped to establish secret police services across Eastern Europe in league with their local Communist Party. This force was used to gather intelligence and eliminate their local opponents. Second, the Communists got themselves appointed to the most powerful positions in the various left-wing coalition governments, such as the Ministry of the Interior, which controlled the police and security forces, issued identity papers, including passports and visas, and granted licenses to newspapers. This office had the greatest control over people's day-to-day -day lives. Another important post was the Ministry of Justice, which controlled the hiring and firing of judges and was used to eliminate, quote, fascist elements from power, basically all those who opposed the Communist Party. Third was the control of the radio stations. The radio could reach millions of people, especially the illiterate, and combined with the control of the newspapers, the Communists controlled the national dialogue of what people generally knew and talked about. Fourth was the control of civil society. The local Communist Party harassed, per persecuted, and eventually banned church groups, youth groups, and independent trade unions, which were all replaced with communist organizations or were outright banned, giving the communist control of civil society and people's day-to-day -day lives. The communists originally thought that with this infrastructure in place, they would easily win the elections, having the nations become socialist over time, but with the heightened tensions and the people not rushing to the communist party, it was now possible to move in a dictatorial direction taking control via violent means. The Communist parties also began the takeover of their individual economies. The first step was land reform. Large estates in the countryside were split up, which was fairly easy with the deaths and displacement of millions. But in 1945, this policy wasn't exactly communist. Many left-wing parties of the period favored land reform. Small businesses, although not illegal, were harassed and operated in a hostile environment. They were monitored by the secret police and often charged with fraud or in impropriety. Over time, nearly all private restaurants in Budapest became people's cafeterias and state-owned proletarian pubs. The communists also nationalized the remaining industries that were not dismantled and sent to the Soviet Union and began re-centralizing the economy around five-year plans similar to the Soviet Union. Over the long term, nationalization of the economy prolonged shortages and distorted market prices. Economic planners struggled with fixing prices. Most nations, such as Poland, also saw the use of multiple currencies, such as the Reichsmark, Russian ruble, and Polish Zolti. Yeast and alcohol also served as currency in some places. Staple goods were rationed almost everywhere. Hyperinflation was also an issue as well in Hungary and East Germany, where prices changed by the hour and people struggled to buy food and basic goods. Because of this, and despite propaganda and the secret police, the black market grew ever more complex, from primitive street hawkers to sophisticated smuggling operations. In conclusion, the question arises, if the Soviet Union and the Allies found a way to cooperate with each other during the war through tense periods, why couldn't they have found a way to negotiate a peace in the post-war period? The answer is no, because basically... Ideologically, the Soviet Union, which was built on Marxist-Leninism, was built around the premise of eventual struggle with the capitalist world. In the Marxist-Leninist view, the capitalists couldn't be trusted, therefore any peace would be transitory.
the Americans compounded these matters as well by being hypocritical. In both France and Italy, the Communist Party was kept out of power, while America complained about the unfair treatment of democratic parties and nations under Russian occupation. If Stalin would have died in 1945 or 1946, it might have been possible for his successor to be more accommodating with the United States. Nevertheless, Stalin and the Soviet elites shared many similar prejudices about the West and the same ideology, Marxist-Leninism, which advocated class struggle. As we will see, Khrushchev's assumption of leadership in the Soviet Union and the de-Stalinization did not result in an end to the Cold War. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 4, Eastern Europe, 1941-1948. to Join us for Episode 5, where we will be taking a biographical portrait looking at some of the leaders of the early Cold War. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast, all one word. To find our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to us at coldwarpodcast at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.